Hey, thank you so much for checking out today's message. Our hope with this content is that it would help you come to know Jesus, follow Jesus, and lead others to do the same. If you're grateful for this word, be sure to hit that like button, subscribe to our channel, and also you can partner with what Jesus is doing here at Elevate City through giving. There's a link below for that as well. Here's today's message. I can't wait for you to hear it. Well, we're wrapping up Jesus People Volume 2, and throughout this series, we've been uncovering, like, who are Jesus People? What do Jesus People look like? Could following Jesus actually make any difference in my life? And the reality is, is that language creates culture, and culture shapes organizations. And so throughout this series, we've been looking at some of the language, some of the DNA of our church, what makes us stand out, what makes us unique, who are we as Jesus People? Because more than being known as church people, more than being known as Christian people or religious people, we want to be known as Jesus people. And our hope through this series is that you've received some vernacular, you've received some language that can help you as you share Jesus with your friends and your family and random strangers that when they ask you, hey, what is this thing all about? You say, hey, yeah, we're just some Jesus people. Can I tell you about Jesus? Do you want to meet him? And so today may be the last installment of this series. But it's not the end of the discussion. It is just the beginning. And so today we're going to be talking about this cultural statement for our church. Passion is our posture. Let me hear you say that. Passion is our posture. And so I want to read. You received uh, this whenever you walked in today. I want to read here from our little culture booklet the description for passion is our posture. It says, we have the greatest news on planet Earth. We're pretty jacked up about it. Our songs are loud, our joy is unmatched, and our passion is uncontainable. You might not know if you're buying in, but you will have no doubt that we are smoking what we are selling. (laughs) How wild is that? Like, how crazy is our church? I love my church. Listen, the early church undoubtedly knew the power that our postures towards God can have. And passionate praise has always been a part of the DNA of the church. We see all the way at the very beginning in Acts chapter 2. At the end of Acts chapter 2, it says that the early church was praising God and having favor with all the people. When the Apostle Paul, he wrote to the Colossians, uh, the, the church at Colossae, he says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And he says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So today's message is all about praise. It's a message that's actually been stirring in my heart for the church for a very long time. It's a message that I first heard um, about five years ago back in 2017 at a conference, and it's a message that was preached by a pastor named Darren Whitehead. And the reason why I'll never forget this message isn't because that this guy had a really cool Australian accent. The reason that I'll never forget this message is because it drastically changed how I worship forever. It was one of those messages where you've got chills, you've got goosebumps, and you're like, that changed my life. And so apparently I wasn't the only one who, uh, who was so changed by this message. Uh, Grammy award-winning artist Chris Tomlin was actually in the room, and he heard the message. And he tells a story of he goes up to Darren afterwards, and he says, hey, we have to turn this into a book because the entire world needs to hear what you just said. 
And so they did that. They turned this message uh, about the seven Hebrew words of praise into a book called Holy Roar, seven words that will change the way that you worship. And it's by Darren Whitehead and Chris Tomlin. And I went through the book and, and I, what I love about this book is that they did so much of the research and they put together this resource for the church. And they said, hey, if you would just start to see worship this way, it'll change how you worship. And so this message tonight isn't based on two man's opinion about worship, I promise you that. It's actually based on seven words that we see in the Bible that if we would come to understand these words for praise, it'll dramatically change how we praise God forever. And so uh, I wanna start with this question tonight. What does your posture of worship communicate about what you value most? What does your posture of worship communicate about what you value most. See, I believe there's a heart disconnect today in the global church with what we say we value most versus what our postures in our lives communicate about what we value most. Like for example, did anyone watch college football yesterday? Anyone college football? Okay, yeah, a few of you. Any UGA fans in the house, dogs? Y'all went hunting for some ducks yesterday, right? Just slaughter, it was crazy. Well, especially the UGA fans, and then if you watch college football at all, I'm sure you remember this powerful moment from the national championship last year. Check this out. Bryce Young's career. You need 10. Play clock at four. From the pocket. Launching downfield. Underthrown and intercepted. Keely Ringo has an escort down the sidelines. All the way to the end zone. And Georgia is going to conquer the Crimson Tide. How wild. I just heard someone say that was demonic. That's funny. <laughs> Do you think they were a little excited? Like, I mean, come on, like, those are some passionate postures. When it's game day, like, we're totally okay with making a fool of ourselves, right? Like, we're totally okay with jumping up and down for our team, with raising our hands, with shouting out. We're even okay with painting our bodies weird colors. Like, we're, we're down to pray if it's for a touchdown. Like, we're okay with people seeing us shed some tears if it's for football. We'll sacrifice sleep. We'll stay up late. We'll wake up early just so that we can celebrate our team. But then the very next day, on Sunday morning, those very same people losing their minds show up in church, and this is what it looks like. Waymaker, miracle work, worker, prom. Am I right? I feel like there's a disconnect in our hearts. There's a disconnect between our hearts and our hands. Like, why is it that we can get so hype watching some 300-pound 20-year-olds in tights fight over a leather ball just trying to move it across an imaginary yellow line that just keeps moving? Where is that line going? And we lose our minds, but then we show up in church and... We 
struggle. There is a disconnect between our hearts and our hands when it comes to worship. And I believe there's a problem in the posture of our praise for the God of the universe when we compare it to the way that we are so passionate about the things of this world. And so if you're taking notes, I, uh, and I hope that you are, the title for our message today is Passion is Our Posture. The seven Hebrew words for praise. Like I mentioned earlier, this book that talks about the seven Hebrew words for praise. In the Old Testament, or the first half of the Bible, the, the first half was written in Hebrew, the language of the people of Israel. And when the translators were translating it into modern day English, of the Old Testament translators, they had a challenge of taking these seven words that were in Hebrew that encompassed this word praise in our English, and had the challenge of taking these seven words and just packing them into one single word for praise in the English. And so this is a message on the posture of our praise as a church, and it has distinct praise-altering implications. And so let me just get this disclaimer out here at the beginning, okay? Because um, I get that worship isn't just singing. All the Bible scholars in the, in the room right now, you're like, well, actually, Joe, worship is a way of life. Everything you do is worship. And I get that. Totally agree. But one of the disconnects is that the Bible, when it speaks of worship, it speaks over and over and over again about singing to God, about shouting to God, about lifting up our voices, about making music for our God. And so if we're going to be known as Jesus people, we got to be known as people that are passionate about praising God, that we don't just gather here on Sundays to sing because we like the way that we sound, because I sure don't like the way that I sound, that's why the music's loud. Like, we gather to sing because God is worthy of our worship, period. He is worthy of our worship, and our worship has the power to foremost glorify God, but it also has the power to change our hearts. And it's ultimately, worship is our response to what we value most. It's it's how we treat or treasure the thing that we value above everything else. And what's beautiful is that our bodies are the vehicle for expressing what we value most in this life. So our posture when we praise, when we sing, when we worship really actually does matter to God. And so you may feel a little comfy tonight, like if you are new in church and, and you're like, what the heck, like just happened before he got on stage and now you're like, what is he going to talk about right now? It's okay, I promise it is going to be okay, but my challenge is just to lean in with me tonight about what the Bible has to say about praise. And my hope is to disciple and to equip us tonight as we look at this word, these words for praise and what God would want to do in our head and our hearts and ultimately in our hands as we worship him. And so let's dive in. We're going to be looking at the seven Hebrew words for praise. And the first Hebrew word that we see for praise is this word, yada. Let me hear you say, yada. Yada means to revere or to worship with extended hands, to throw, to hold out our hands, to throw a stone or to throw an arrow. One of the places we see it in Psalm 67, 3, it says, May the peoples praise Yada, you, God. May all the peoples praise Yada, you. Yada, it's one of the seven words translated. It appears 11 times in scripture. And this picture that the word gives us is just extended hands held out to God. 
See, this room is people that I get are uh, come from all sorts of different church backgrounds. Like some of y'all, y'all are completely new to church. Some of y'all, you were practically born at church, okay? Like some of you, you grew up uh, in a room similar to this, sitting in a pew, and when worship happened, you would hold out a hymnal, and you would flip to a page, and there'd be an organ and a choir, and people in weird robes, and you would have to find the page number and they would be singing through, but sometimes you'd get lost because they sing lines over and over and your worship looked like this. Some of you, you grew up in a church that looked nothing like that, but maybe you grew up in a church where it was like a rock and roll show and you show up and your posture looked more like, is this allowed? What? And then some of you, you grew up in a church that's kind of a blend of the two. Maybe you were in a church similar to this where you've seen some people raise their hands and, and you've seen some people throw up one here, or another one there, or hold their hands out like this or straight up, like touchdown. And, and, and some of you, maybe you grew up in a Pentecostal church. You've been to a Pentecostal church and, and for you, you know, like this ain't nothing. Like... <laughs> For you, you're like, when we show up to church, like everyone's hands are up, like that's the starting point. And if your hands aren't up, you're the outlier. If you're not on the floor, your hands better be up in the room. It's crazy. And so we've got all these different backgrounds. I'll never forget the first time that I lifted my hands in church. And it was really this process of God just working on my heart for a long time. And it all stems back to starting at this point um, where my friend's mom uh, brought us to a Pentecostal church for the first time. And, and my friend's mom's name was Deb. And Deb made it a point that every Wednesday night, she would convince or bribe our whole friend group to go to church with them on Wednesday night for their worship night kind of youth gathering. And it was at a Pentecostal church. And I'll never forget the first time I show up and I walk in there. And I've been to church before, but not church like this. And I'm in there. And I remember seeing all these people lifting their hands. And I was like, do they have a question? Do you need to use the bathroom, sir? Like, why are all of these people raising their hands? And so we kept coming back to this church. And finally, Deb, one night, she gives me a CD mixtape of uh, different worship songs. And if you don't know what a CD is, you can ask your parents. You can ask Joey even, he's getting up there in age. And, and, uh, and a CD, it's kind of like a, like a disco ball Frisbee, and, but you'd put it into this thing and it would play music. And, and so it was a mixtape for people my age and uh, back then. And, um, and on this CD, she put these different songs. And one of the songs I'll never forget was a song called From the Inside Out by Hillsong United. And this song was on there. And I remember the first time I heard it, I closed my eyes and I just pictured this arena because I could hear these people singing and I just pictured this arena full of people with their hands lifted high in praise to God. And I couldn't get enough of it. I just kept listening over and over again. I wanted it on my iPod so I could listen to it more. So I illegally downloaded the song because I didn't really know Jesus yet. And so it was on my iPod and I would just listen to worship music over and over and over again. And God started to work on my heart. And, and I'll never forget, I show up at church one night and, and God had been working on my heart for a while. And we start to worship and, and something was just burning in my chest. And I couldn't really describe it, but I just knew that God was up to something in my heart. And usually in worship, this would be me. And 
I would start to kind of move a little bit because I'm a musician, I play music, and I'm just like, I would start to do this, but never my hand would shoot into the air. And this one particular night, I'll never forget it, the band starts to lead us in from the inside out, and there was this just burning in my chest that I couldn't contain. And so I'm standing there, and they start to sing, and I just... And I cannot explain to you or describe to you the feeling that that gave me. To know that in that moment, I didn't care at all about what the people around me thought anymore. I wasn't worried about what they thought. I just decided to worship. And I threw my hands in the air. And this rush of wind just filled my body. And for the first time, I was like, I can do this. I can worship you, God. What is happening? And over and over and over again. And God began to change my heart through worshiping him. It was this most powerful just moment I had experienced up to that point. I started to ask myself this question. How can I not raise my hands right now? How can I not? We're singing about this God that has saved us and changed. How can I not lift my hands? This word yada in the context of praise describes the moment for where the Hebrew people were so overcome by the glory of the Lord that their hands shot upward in response. Is there any more natural expression of praise and excitement than yada? Think about it yesterday, people all across the country, people in this room, you did this yesterday watching football. <gasps> yes. When you're at a concert, what do you do when you're at a concert? Sometimes it's two hands up, sometimes you've got one hand holding a drink and your other hand is. <laughs> when the Braves won the World Series last year, what did you do? You lost your mind, right? You were jumping and screaming and kicking. Jake was on the floor weeping like it was crazy. You'll never forget it. Some people are chopping. Some people, it's just this wild, just explosion of excitement. Our hands lifted high is a natural expression to what's going on in our hearts. And so the question I would ask is, what's going on in your heart where you can do this for football, but you can't do this for God? He is worthy of our worship. It is this active posture expressed by people who adore God. Back to Psalm 63, 7, the psalmist penned a song of praise, and this is what it is. May the peoples praise Yada you, God. May all the peoples Yada you. See, this was certainly a word written for the Hebrew people, but notice it says all the peoples, whether Hebrew or otherwise, all peoples praising God, the people of Israel, the people of the early church, you and me, the family of God, you dying the Lord. Whether you consider yourself charismatic or conservative or Catholic or non-denominational or Baptist or Methodist or Lutheran or Presbyterian, whatever background, we are all called to yada our God. It's a verb. It's just what Jesus' people do. Yada the Lord. And it's also an eternal verb. It transcends time and place. In Psalm 44, 8, the psalmist wrote, In God we make our boast all day long. We will praise Yada, your name, forever. Forever. 
that one day we will yadah God forever and ever. And so shouldn't we start practicing now? Martin Lloyd-Jones, the reformer, says, a dislike of enthusiasm can be one of the greatest hindrances to revival. The second word, Hebrew word for praise, halal. Let me hear you say halal. Halal means to boast, to rave, to shine, to celebrate, to be clamorously foolish. Psalm 149 says, let them praise halal, his name, with dancing and make music to him with a timbrel and a harp. Halal is actually the primary Hebrew word that we see for praise. It's where we get the word hallelujah from. Hallelujah is this combination of halal, which means praise, and yah, which is part of Yahweh. And so together it means God be praised or praise the Lord. And so every time we say that word hallelujah, what I want you to not think is hallelujah, God is good. He's good all the time. I want you to think, hallelujah, Woo! God is good. He is so great, hallelujah, to boast, to rave, to shine, to celebrate, to be clamorously foolish. It involves laying aside our need to, for the approval of others and saying, I don't care what you think, I'm worshiping my God freely right now. I don't remember much from Leslie and I's wedding because it was eight years ago. But one of the things I'll never forget about our wedding is that there was 250 plus people in this reception and there was a 30 foot by 30 foot dance floor. And as soon as that beat dropped, y'all, the dance floor was hot. Like, I'm telling you, like, people were dancing and jumping and, like, sweaty, just sweat everywhere. It was this just wild, crazy celebration, just praising all night long. And you know what the crazy part is? There was no alcohol there. Y'all, this was a dry wedding, but it was lit. And this place was just <laughs> erupting with this idea of halal, halal. I'll never forget that party. And what if that's how church felt every time we gathered together? What if church felt like this one big, epic wedding party celebration of gratitude for our God and all he has done? Psalm 69, 30 says, I will praise halal, God's name in song. Psalm 109, 30 says, with my mouth, I will greatly extol the Lord and the great throng of worshipers, I will halal him. This concept of halal is so embedded into this notion of praise that it's actually the capstone for the end of the book of Psalms. In Psalm 150, the writer concludes everything that's been happening. He says, let everything that has breath halal the Lord. Like, have you ever wondered what God thinks about our worship? Like on a Sunday when he's looking down at the church in North America, and when he looks down, and he sees our worship, like, what do you think he is thinking? Like, I have to imagine that the God of the universe is looking down so many times and saying, why won't they just cut loose? Why won't they just halal my name? Oh, are they going to do it today? Are they going to? Are they going to? Are they going to cut loose, halal my name? I look back at all the moments uh, in youth group 
when we would shoot off confetti cannons in worship and we would spin and we would jump and we would dance. I think that's halal. Yeah, it may look a little undignified, maybe a little rowdy, but I feel like that is the essence of halal. Like King David, he understood this concept so well that King David, when he would worship, Sometimes his clothes would just fall off, y'all. Like he would just worship. He wouldn't let anything hold him back. Hello? We're not going to do that here. But But isn't that the essence? He's like, I just got to go all in for my God and King. C.S. Lewis, he says this. He says, the most valuable thing the Psalms do for me is to express the same delight in God which made David The third Hebrew word for praise we're going to look at is zamer, zamer. Say it with me, zamer. To make music, to celebrate in song and music, to touch the strings or parts of a musical instrument. Psalm 144 says, I will sing a new song to you, O God. On a harp of ten strings, I will praise, I will sing praises, zamer, to you. Have you ever noticed the power that music can add to a moment? In the book of 2 Kings, we see the sons of Israel. They are poised um, at a battle against Moab, the people of Moab. And, And they come up to this moment where all of the water in their stores had dried up and they were just stuck. There was nothing that they could do in that moment. And so the people gather together and they say, hey, is there anyone in our midst like a prophet or someone that can come out and just plead on our behalf to God, maybe work out some sort of a miracle. And so the prophet Elisha, he steps forward in the middle of this battle that is about to wage. And Elisha stands before the people and he says, yeah, I've got a word from the Lord. And they're like, great, tell us. Before he would speak, Elisha asked them to bring a musician to give him a music Second Kings, but now, Elisha says, bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he says, thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. Elisha knew the power of a good soundtrack, how it frames up a moment. Like there's a reason why every great movie has an award-winning soundtrack, right? Like imagine Star Wars without music. Like, that's pretty awkward. No one is watching that movie. There's something about music that has the power to just frame up a moment. That's why we usually sing before the teaching and preaching of God's word on Sundays is because we want to prepare our hearts. Music has such a powerful way to prepare our hearts to receive important messages. And so if you ever wonder why at the end of our sermons, usually someone comes up here and they start to play the piano and play the keys underneath We're just following the Bible. They may have not had a keyboard, but we are just doing what we see happening in Scripture over and over again. Praise and worship can be a powerful tool that draws us into a personal experience with God. Music is often even so much more powerful than we understand. Like, doesn't it just do something to soothe your soul? When you're sad, you just play that song, and it just echoes through your mind, and it does something to calm your soul. It has the power to open up the things of the Spirit for us to receive what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our hearts and in our lives. It tunes our hearts to the anthems of heaven. There's just something beautiful about music. In Psalm 57, many of um, 
theologians think that Psalm 57, King David actually wrote while he was hiding in a cave in a desert from King Saul. And he writes these words. He says, my heart is fixed, O God, my heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise, Zemer, Psalm 57. See, David was literally fleeing from his, for his life from this king that wanted his head. He wanted him dead, gone. And David finds himself literally stuck between a rock and a hard place. He is fleeing for his life. And what does he do? He's like, hey, can you bring me my guitar? I got to write a song right now for my God. Hey, get your phone out. Record this right now. I've got to write a song right now for my God and my king. David understood what Elisha, uh, David recognized what Elisha understood, that music can bolster the human heart. It can fill us with courage to do things that we might otherwise not do. And so when the people of Israel, when they were going into battle, you know what they so oftentimes did? They didn't send the tallest, the most warrior-like men to the front lines. You know what they did? Is they sent the worship leaders to go first to pave the way. They sent the guys in skinny jeans and graphic tees and long greasy hair. And, and they sent the, the band geeks and, and the keyboards. They sent them all to the front and they said, prepare the way, pave the way for us. Lead the way in song. Martin Luther, the reformer, he says, next to the word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. Beautiful music is the art of the prophets that can calm the agitations of the soul. It is one of the most magnificent and delightful presents that God has given us. And so when the drums are a little loud in here and the guitar seems to be piercing your ears, we're not doing this out of just our amusement. No, music is played here for the glory of God so that we can tune our hearts to his. Number four, Hebrew word for praise is Tada, tada means an extension of the hand, thanksgiving, a confession, a sacrifice of praise, thanksgiving for things not yet received, a choir of worshipers. Psalm 56, 11 says, In God I have put my trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Vows made to you are binding upon me. O oh God, I will render praises, tada, to you. Tada is this Hebrew word that means an extension of the hand in thanksgiving to God for the things that he has done, that he's already done, but it's also this extending of our hand, believing that he has more to come, expecting that he is better in store, believing that he's going to come through on his promises. You know, if I'm honest, there's times where I really don't feel like lifting my hands on a Sunday. Like if I can just be real, there's times where I've got so many things going through my mind and, and maybe I'm just struggling with something and, and sometimes I'm just like, oh, I'm just, just caught up and just so just anxious and so distracted and there's times where I'm like, I don't really want to lift my hands right now. But what this word tada teaches me is that those are the moments that I really need to lift my hands even the more, all the more. That sometimes we worship out of emotion, but sometimes we need to worship into emotion, that our heart may not be there yet, but I'm going to expect, God, that you're going to speak, and God, that you're going to move, and God, that you can change my situation, and God, you can calm my heart, and God, you can speak to me in this moment, and so I'm going to lift my hands expecting that you are going to come through on your promises, and that you are with me, 
and that you say that you'll be all things to me, everything that I need. The reason we lift our hands can oftentimes be summed up into two words, victory and surrender, that I'm going to lift my hands because I know that my God defeated sin and death, and I'm going to lift my hands to remind myself that victory has been won, and I'm singing to a resurrected king, and I'm going to raise my hands saying, God, you are so good and greatly to be praised. The victory is yours. And we also raise our hands in surrender to say, God, I may not have received that yet, but God, will you work in my heart? I'm surrendering to you now in this moment, believing in who you are and what you can do. God, I'm raising my hands and surrender. Have your way. Have your way with me right now. God, I don't know if I believe what I'm singing yet, but I'm gonna raise my hands. I'm just gonna surrender to you, trusting in who you are and your heart for me. When we raise our hands toward heaven, we are placing our hope in the things of God and who he is. A.W. Tozer, he says this, true worship is that pleasing, true worship that is pleasing to God creates within the human heart a spirit of expectation and insatiable longing. Next word we have is Barak. Let me hear you say Barak. Barak means to kneel to bless God as an act of adoration, to praise, to salute, to thank him. Psalm 103, praise Barak the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Barak, praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Praise Barak the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Barak the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Barak the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Barak the Lord, my soul. See, Barak embodies this notion of kneeling, of getting low before God and saying, I'm adoring you and I recognize my position in relation to you is here. It's a word of humility. Barak is used over 200, is used 289 times in the Psalms, and every time it's used, it's used to describe worshipers falling on their face before God in reverence, in adoration, in submission, in humility to God. See, this isn't just a posture for the spiritually elite. It isn't just a posture for those that are charismatic. It isn't just a posture for those that have been walking with God for a really long time. It isn't just a posture of those who have, who have seemed to have hit rock bottom and their only response is their world's crumbling around them so they're going to get on their knees. That is not just what it's for. It should be this consistent posture that Jesus' people have to remind themselves of who God is and who we are. And the more that we do it, I'll never forget when I heard this for the first time, I was at a place where I was like, I can't remember the last time I kneeled. When was the last time I kneeled to you, God? And I heard this word and I was like, oh my goodness, you tell me to do it over and over and over again. And so one of the things that I have learned is that when you're just randomly, haphazardly, just, you know, kneel once a year, like you may not see this change happen immediately, 
But if you'll commit to say, hey, God, I'm going to kneel before you consistently and over and over again, I promise you that God is going to work on your heart and he's going to chisel away some of your pride and you're going to realize how small you are and how big he is, but how crazy in love with you he is. Over and over again, the posture of Barak draws your attention off of you and onto the God who made you. Psalm 100 verse 4 says, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise, Tehillah, give thanks to him and praise Barak, his name. This leads us to our next word, Tehillah. Tehillah. It means a laudation, a hymn, a song of praise, a new song, a spontaneous song. Psalm 22, 3 says, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises, Tehillah, of Israel. And so the book of Psalms is a is, is composed of just a bunch of songs, but this word tehillah is actually so central to the book of Psalms that the, in the Hebrew language, they called the book of Psalms tehillah, a variation of that word. This describes songs that are sung in the spirit to God, that it's a new song, like when God just places a chorus on your heart in the moment through the power of the Holy Spirit and you sing it back to him. Like what we just experienced earlier before I got up on the stage, that was this picture of Tehillah, that we're just singing and the music is just playing and I'm just gonna start to shout out a new chorus to you, God, that you are good and you are great, you are good. And over and over we sing a new song back to him and these songs oftentimes they aren't polished, but they're powerful and they can move our hearts to wanna see him for who he really is. When we offer these spontaneous songs of praise to God, what this uh, verse in Psalm 22 says is that God steps down from his throne and he sits on our praises. He is literally enthroned on our praises. He comes down, he's like, oh, they're doing it. Tehillah, all right, I'm gonna step down right now. Here I come. And he comes to inhabit the praises of his people. Like how wild is that? That is so crazy that when we did that right then in that moment, what just happened? God stepped down, sits enthroned upon those praises. In Ephesians 5, the apostle Paul, he gives another instruction to the church and it's a repeated instruction. So it means it's very important. He says, addressing one another in Psalms, which Psalms would be singing the Psalms from scripture. So many of the songs that we sing, just so you know, is they're just the Psalms. It's coming from the Bible. We just kind of put the words together in a way that is into a new song over and over again. And then hymns, hymns would be a song of praise written to God. And then he says, and spiritual songs, that's Tehillah. Singing and make melody, making melody to the Lord with your heart. New fresh, spirit-filled songs. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he says this, praise is the rehearsal of our eternal song. By grace we learn to sing, and in glory we continue to sing. Number seven, our final word, shabak. Let me hear you say shabak. Shabak means to address in a loud tone, to shout, to command glory and triumph. Psalm 145, one generation shall praise Shabak, your words to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. My family, um, we love going to the zoo. We love going to the Atlanta Zoo. And when we go, um, we, they love, our kids love to see the elephants and the giraffes, but 
one of their favorite animals to see is undoubtedly the lions. Like there's just something about seeing a lion in real life that just changes you, okay? And so when we get there, they're always like, we gotta go see the lions. And little did they know the lions would love to eat them. And we go to see the lions and we check them out. And one week we go and we see the lions and then we're walking all the way um, around the park and we make our way, and it is massive. And we make our way to the other side of the park and all of a sudden we start to hear what we think is thunder. And we're like looking up in the sky and we're like, there's not a cloud in the sky. Why are we hearing thunder? Sure enough, it just kept happening over and over and over again. And we're like, what is happening? God, are you, like, what's happening? Are you coming down? Like, and we keep walking, and sure enough, we come up to one of the workers, and we hear them talking to someone, and they said, the lions are roaring today. They're roaring. They're talking. I start to talk to them about the lions and their roar, and they tell me that a lion's roar can be heard up to five miles away, that their roar can just travel from one place, it transcends geography, just moves across where they're at. This word Shabak, that's what it speaks to. This loud shout that moves from one generation to another. It is this holy roar that is just echoing, echoing that the people of God are Shabaking, and all of a sudden just one generation and the next generation begins to hear of the greatness and the glory of our God. Church, I want to ask you a question. Psalm 145 says, one generation shall Shabak to another. Is our generation hearing about the greatness of our God? Are we shabaking so loud, shouting so loud that it comes above everything else that this world wants to offer them? Because if we're not going to shabak to the next generation, the world will, culture will, someone else will. They just, they're after them. But the church, the people of God, Jesus' people, should be a people who we say, not on my watch. I'm going to shabak. I'm going to shout so loud it's going to echo from generation to generation all the way into eternity about the greatness and the glory of my God. When we sang shout to the Lord earlier, were we Shabakin? For some of us, like, let's just be honest. Sometimes we're just, shout to the Lord. Shout to the Lord. But what if when we saw that word shout and we were singing and we said, shout the name of Jesus. When we sing shout to the Lord. What if we started to see every time that we saw that word, we said, I'm a Shabak right now. I'm going to start to sing. I don't care if this person next to me knows that I'm singing off key. I'm just going to start to shabak to the Lord and tell my God how great he is because he's worthy of it. He says sing a joyful, make a joyful noise to him. Well, that's a joyful noise. I am happy about how great you are, God. I'm going to shabak to you every time that I praise your name. Psalm 63 says, you, God, just look at this. You are my God. Earnestly I seek you, I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise Shabak you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. 
Like, what would it take for you to worship like that? For you to see that His love is better than life. And so my lips, they're just going to praise Him. They're going to shabak. They're going to shout over and over and over again. One of the things that we have to know about these seven words is these aren't like suggestions in the Bible. Like if you feel like it, try these things out. These aren't like optional for Jesus people. These are instructions. These are commands that God is calling us to lay aside our comfort for his call for our lives, to praise his holy name, to say, ah, I'm just not wired that way is to say, well, okay, are you just gonna choose to like, all right, well, I don't really feel like, you know, loving people, so I'm just gonna be an angry person all the days of my life. Like, I'm just gonna pick and choose which commands I wanna follow and not follow. No, 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 God's saying, this is the best that I have for you. That if you would praise me like this, this is how you'll really experience me in worship. So why is passion our posture? Because Jesus is worthy. He is so worthy. And when people meet Jesus people, their response should be this. I'm not sure if I believe that, but I know for sure that they believe that. And I might want that. When people show up in this church, they should undoubtedly be like, wow, they are on fire for what they're singing right now. They really believe that God is great. They believe it. I might want that. I want to close with this question. I want you just to think about this, that what does my posture of praise communicate about my heart for God? What does my posture of praise communicate about my heart for God? That every week when we're worshiping, you can ask yourself that question, what is I communicating right now with my posture about who I believe God to be and how great he is. I want to close with this. July 11th, 2022, the first images from this James Webb telescope were unveiled to the public. And images like this started flying all across the internet. And images that honestly like look too good to believe. They're like, wait, is that real? Like, is that just a computer? And the mission of this telescope is pretty clear. It says on their website that they're seeking to answer three questions that everyone in the world seems to be asking according to them is, why are we here? Where did we come from? And is this really all that there is? And they spent 24 billion, 24 years and $10 billion invested into this project to seek to find the answers to those questions. Where is this from? How could this happen? was Jesus people, when we see images like this, our response should be praise. Our response should be, ha, ha, yeah, that, woo, that's my God. He did that. That is my God. Woo, yep, that's him. <laughs> did you see that? Y'all seen those pictures? Woo, he is worthy of my praise. He is the one that did that. That's who he is. You know what else my God did? My God stepped down from heaven to the very earth that he created. 
and lived a perfect, sinless life, serving people, riding on a donkey, serving people. And he went to a Roman cross, a cross that was made for criminals, a cross that was actually made for you and me. And he took my, the payment for my sin, the debt for my sin, for how I've sinned against God. And he died. He who, became, who, he who knew no sin became sin so that we could know God, so that we could be called the righteousness of God. He died a death that he did not deserve. My God did that. My God, the very God that created the heavens and the stars and the galaxies is the same God that not only died, but then three days later rose. And he rose in victory saying, hey, I've got power over death. I've got power over sin. I've got power over darkness. And I can offer life to you, life eternal and life and joy here on this earth. And you can be ushered into my kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that darkness is running from. If you would trust in me and follow me, you can come into my kingdom. And I'm the God that did that. So Jesus on the third day rises from the dead and he invites people to follow him, to trust in him, to come to know him, to believe in him as savior and as the Lord of their life. And when you step into a relationship with Jesus, when you see pictures like this, your response is, yep, that's Jesus. Colossians 1 tells us, for all things have been created by Jesus and for Jesus. He did that. And if he can do that, if he can step down into my story, and if he can step down and die for me, then surely he's worth it.